Over the past eight years, gay marriage has gone from a wedge issue to a constitutional amendment. However, Hollywood's response to gains in LGBTQ rights and visibility has been far from revolutionary. As Mark Harris argued in his feature from the November-December issue, the vast majority of films have relied on coded sexuality or treated it as an afterthought, assuming that LGBTQ characters are present at all. But what does good representation look like? I spoke with K. Austin Collins of The Ringer, Fariha Zaman, critic and production manager for Field of Vision, and Michael Koreski, editorial director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center, to discuss Mark's feature and much more. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by Fariha Zaman, Mark Harris, Michael Koreski, Cameron Collins. Thank you all for coming. So today we're going to be discussing, Mark, your piece that was in the November-December issue of Film Comet, which was contrasting contemporary LGBT characters in American cinema with and sort of their lackluster representation. They're essentially kind of present but sexless presence in most in a lot of independent Hollywood films versus the new queer cinema, which was something that B. Ruby Rich identified in an article originally published in The Village Voice, which was later republished in Sight and Sound as part of this larger midsection about this new crop of gay-focused films made by gay directors that were going through Sundance. Uh, this was in 1992. You know, people like... Um, Derek Jarman's Edward II, uh, a lot of things, swoon, things that were going through, you know, sort, it was sort of it was sort of global. So yeah, I guess let's start off with the big image, the sort of the centerpiece of your argument, which is Star Trek, turn out the dark, what is it? Beyond. Star Trek to beyond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and you write about the character of Sulu, which was originally portrayed by George Takei, who is in real life a gay man, who has been pretty active in terms of like visibility, been pretty cool. And Takei himself was like, this is kind of a bullshit move. And then in the film, you see why he would say something like that. So could you sort of elaborate why that was sort of like your starting point? Sure. Although I, I just want to start by saying that this post-visibility, I'll call it LGBT crisis, mm -hmm. uh, is something that I identify more as being an issue in studio and mainstream movies than right. in current independent cinema, which I think actually has a lot of vital and interesting portrayals of the kind we wouldn't even have seen in new queer cinema 20 years ago, let alone in a studio movie. Mm -hmm. But with Star Trek, beyond, um, <laughs> this, this to me was a kind of great example of how far we haven't come, because the the queering of Sulu, which I think George Takei objected to just f not because it wasn't enough, but actually from his perspective, it was too much. From his perspective, yeah. he, they, they were taking a character that he felt he had some ownership of and making him gay when he wasn't. So that's obviously a sort of issue that is going to be deeply colored if you are someone who played Sulu, but for the rest of us, what was going on in that movie was a kind of return to more signaling the homosexuality of a character, more signaling the homosexuality mm -hmm. of a character than actually exploring it or even weaving it deeply into the fabric. The only knowledge you have of Sulu's homosexuality in this movie is that you see that he has a partner with whom he has a child and he touches the partner on the back in a sort of intimate rather than brotherly way and then 
later in the movie, the partner shows up at whatever the enterprise year end party. I had kind of lost track of the plot by then. <laughs> the but, holiday party. But he's, he's sort of included in general, like Star Trek fam. Mm-hmm. So you know that he's part of it. And I felt really sort of ambivalent about this because on one level I thought, Oh God, like 15 seconds of a two hour movie without a line of dialogue and it's going to win itself a glad award. You know, (laughs) it's like the littlest effort you can possibly make. And yet that is 15 seconds more than you would see in most other studio movies this year. And at least it was, I think a good hearted attempt in, in the kind of Star Trek centrist progressive tradition to say, you know, just as, in 1966 saying there can be an Asian guy aboard one of these ships in a position of responsibility. The exact 2016 equivalent of that is, you know, one of these characters might be gay. It's Mm -hmm. sort of the, the Dumbledore thing, except it actually happened within the fabric of the movie rather than as a comment later. But I mean, like, as you mentioned, Star Trek does have this sort of long progressive history that let's say Star Wars doesn't, Um, but because like, Star Trek The Next Generation was sort of a landmark. There was an episode where Dr. Beverly Crusher, she falls in love with this being that can change its sex over its lifespan and she can't handle it. I mean, I remember watching this as a kid and sort of being like, oh, this is what this is. And it is silly that people get upset about this. Like it was sort of like this landmark progressive TV, let's say. And I guess given that these issues have been sort of the, the subtlety as you talk about, like it's a if it's fifteen seconds that doesn't necessarily exist anywhere else. What would be something more than that? What would be going beyond that? Let's say. Well, you know, as I said in the piece, it's hard to say that Sulu should have been woven more deeply into the story when, like, half the people who've seen the movie at least don't even know his first name, and that's after the character has existed for fifty years. Mm-hmm. Star Trek did it in a very Star Trek way. There, there's never deep characterization uh, of of the non-principles. But what it pointed out to me was just that, you know, when I was in my 20s and gay representation in movies was, you know, in the 80s and 90s, much less than it is now, you'd look for anything, any signal, any hint of a character who, you know, might be gay in movies or on TV. I mean, in the second or third season of Friends, there was a long kind of pre-internet public discussion of whether the character of Chandler might be gay because he seemed gay. And we were that Mm -hmm. hungry for, like, anyone who might be one of us was kind of an amazing thing to find. It's really disheartening to me that in 2016 – you know, while in independent movies we have things like Tangerine and Moonlight and um, other people and, you know, a, a variety of LGBTQ and other letters, characters that were are, are really being explored, that in movies it's so rare and so effortful and so awkward. And one thing it really sparked for me that I wanted to explore in the piece was the question of, like, what were we asking for to begin with? Right. Like it, when you don't think you're ever going to get over the mountain, you don't really imagine what's on the other side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that, that wasn't our fault, you know, as, as gay people, we just wanted anything. But what was the utopia? What was the goal? Was it if, if you take that we're four or five percent of the population, was it that we would 
get to be in four or five percent of the running time of every movie or was it that four or five percent of mainstream movies would be about us or that maybe 20 percent of movies would be 20 percent about us like we really didn't know what what is representation is it getting to have our stories told by mainstream storytellers is it telling our own stories or is it being a part of stories that aren't our stories because we're a part of the American story. I, I mean, that's something I think movies are still struggling with. Mm-hmm. And what the piece gets at so well and what's so sad is that, yes, we're asking the same questions that we were asking 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, I look at 2016 and, and I see it just as another year of maybe that was gay movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do you mentioned Ghostbusters in your piece. You know, we don't, I, we don't have to talk about just these comic book mainstream movies, but it's a good way of getting at the argument. The talk around Kate McKinnon, who isn't out actress was maybe that character I think that character might have been a lesbian was she a lesbian I think so but I'm not sure but at least we're asking no that's not good enough actually it's actually it's pretty offensive but it was it's interesting how the maybes are actually uh, they filtered down all the way I mean even a great film like certain women is the entire thing is predicated on a maybe that chapter with Lily Gladstone and Kristen Stewart mm-hmm. is that character a lesbian is she in love with her or is it just a friendship I like that it's ambiguous that's interesting artistically but when it's happening film after film after film it gets to be a bit much I felt like your article reminded me to check that initial excitement because I do feel it because we are still hungry for scraps. Like I think the the great line in your article was about something about living in the ellipses still. <laughs> and and the frustration that you feel later that the representation wasn't substantial enough or that that's all we get in sort of the broader sense almost comes after the 15 seconds. In the 15 seconds, I'm like, oh my God, maybe she's gay. And afterwards, you know, as a critic or a critical thinker, you realize that it's not just about a character who might be gay being in a film at all. It's also about what happens to those characters. How substantially are they positioned within the film? There's a a real parallel to be made about, you know, the the cliche of how like in horror movies in the 90s, like the black guy always dies first because they're expendable because a hero is always a white person and usually a white male straight person. And it's the same situation where those those characters can be marginalized in some way, even in that that exact example. Like there was an, an article, I think in Vulture or something recently about TV's willingness to kill off their lesbian characters. Right. Uh, well, it's, you know, I'm laughing because you said we don't have to talk about these comic book movies the whole time, but it's funny, like when we talk about the hunger for a future, this current moment, did we know we'd be asking these questions of a Hollywood that is defined as defined by comic books, et cetera. Right. Like, like the, the interesting thing for me is that when we're talking about franchises, we're talking about queering characters who already have histories. And there's a particular, I think, difficulty there that I try to keep in mind whenever I feel that it's not enough, which is always. I try to keep in mind, which is not an excuse, but that like it's different than coming up with a mainstream film in Hollywood that doesn't have any sort of previous IP to which we don't have any sort of attachment and making characters in that kind of film queer versus Star Trek or the queer character, the Brent Spiner character in Independence Day, Resurgence, who turns out to be gay. You find out like when he's dying, spoiler alert, sorry, everyone who is set on seeing Resurgence, or maybe I just saved you a lot of time, I don't know. But, you know, it's, but then I think about, you know, I, um, I keep thinking about Lizzie Kaplan in Allied by Robert Zemeckis, who plays, you know, a queer woman, the sister of Brad Pitt. And it's, 
I feel multiple ways about it. I I like I frankly like seeing Lizzie Kaplan play a queer character. I feel like I've been wanting that since Mean Girls. She's a side character. She's not the main character. They're physically intimate in public, and it's not remarked upon. But you know, and but in a movie like that, it's like given the context with war going on in Britain at the at early 20th century, it's like that raises historical questions that the movie makes me interested in that it's not going to explore, right. which is different than. Um, I mean, with Sulu, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, now I'm curious. I don't want it to be the story, but I'm curious now. Right. And that's why I would say that actually the more movies have been colonized by these ongoing franchises and serials, the easier it should be to include gay characters. Because first of all, there's no purity in comic book storytelling. I mean, didn't the word retcon, which means retroactive continuity, get invented to sure. describe the ability of comic books to constantly reboot their own history and, and tweak things and modernize things? Well, also the idea of slash fiction arose sure. originally from the original series of Star Trek. And there is now, interestingly, obviously, the BBC's Sherlock, that's a huge source of gay fandom and specifically imagining this romance between Holmes and Watson that is not in the show. And like, but then there's also, you know, questions in these communities about, well, are the showrunners on these shows like baiting us? Are they just throwing these little cues and like feeding us this stuff to sort of like boost up the fandom when it's a completely insincere gesture that is never going to actually be in the show in any real way? Or there's a narrative purpose. Like, I feel like in a way there's, it's easier or there's more motivation to like surprise include a queer character or or turn a character who is traditionally considered straight into a queer character because you can imagine the conversations that that exist around um, pushing people's buttons. Like, oh, you'd never expect this in Deadpool or whatever, which is another example of a comic book movie where the comic book itself had a lot of conversation around the uh, bisexuality of that character and you know, people wondered if that would make its way to the screen and it turned into another like, ooh, we made some slide jokes that are actually a little bit homophobic. I yeah. think I think the only way that it's gestured at is that he likes anal or something. Yeah, it's, it's very offensive. But but it's interesting that you see it more in a Ghostbusters, in a, in a Star Wars, or sorry, in a Star Trek than maybe in a non-franchise or non-comic book story-driven mainstream film because what is the reason for doing it? I feel like the the question is like, oh, there's no novelty in having this character just happen to be gay, whereas in those stories, there is. Well, I think it all comes back to a central point of the article, which is it's it's this idea of post-visibility. The fact that, well, we've already attained the heights, right? Uh, Gayness is accepted, isn't it? Everyone's happy with this. Pop culture has really gotten on board. So therefore, can't you just be happy with what you have and move on? And that's when everything slides right back into complete invisibility. And I think that we're at a point where it's as probably bad as I can remember since the 90s. I, I feel like there was actually more of a gesture towards it in the 90s and the early aughts. I, I think so, because back then you had something to gain in terms of attention for your product by being willing to do this. Now that it's sort of considered old hat, nobody feels any obligation to do this. I mean, one thing I say in the piece is that uh, this is an area where TV is far ahead of movies mm-hmm. and I think that's partly because the nature of TV's TV series storytelling is that it's ongoing. It's about returning to the same people over and over again. And you can introduce a character as gay. You can have the character's journey of sexuality be part of the story. Or 
there's a show on NBC this season called This Is Us, which is the most mm-hmm. popular new show of the season. Um, in the ninth or tenth episode of the season, a, a character who we've gotten to know over several episodes was revealed to us to be gay, but not revealed to be gay in a way that was like a crucial story point, just like, and here's another thing you didn't know about him, that he's gay. And it wasn't just like, and now we're never going to mention it again. We found out that he had an old lover. There was a reconciliation scene. But it wasn't the entire point of his story arc either. And that kind of thing is almost impossible to do in a movie where you have two hours to tell your entire story. So you're introducing characters, fleshing them out, and saying goodbye to them all in one go. And so movies are pretty good at Introducing a gay character, the point of whose storyline is this is a gay character. And they can go in the other direction and Sulu somebody. Mm -hmm. Just say, here, we're going to take five whole seconds to tell you he's gay. But neither of those things is exactly naturally weaving Mm -hmm. an LGBT character into a storyline. That's a real challenge for movies. This is us example, sorry, is is really interesting because it it doesn't show to me how far we've come. Though I like what you say about it being casually woven in. It's clearly extremely calculated. They knew from the beginning that this character would be gay, and they knew that they couldn't reveal it because they wanted to grab the viewers early. And so maybe by the time they get to episode 10, they have them enough so that this won't be offensive or controversial enough to keep them. But it's casual and from a storytelling standpoint, or the the style of the storytelling. So there was one, like once upon a time, you there was no way to casually introduce a gay character. It had to be sort of the big reveal. So I, understand, I, I do agree that that's a kind of movement. But now it's a way to, as a creative, to feel that you've accomplished something more meaningful than you really have. It's it's masking like a, a lack of continued depth. Uh, I, I just want to finish out the This Is Us thing and say that for me, This Is Us passes one test, which is, is the gay character handled the same way as every other character? The answer to me is yes, because this is a show that has commodified its plot twists. And the, the, the idea that there's something you don't know about these characters is retailed to you about every 20 minutes. So the fact that this character's father is gay is like, ooh, I didn't see that coming, twist number 30 in the first <laughs> 10 hours of this. So in, in, in that he is being treated like every other character as a tool to be viciously manipulated for audience feelings, then I would say, yeah, okay, like within the fabric of this is us, he's the same as any other character. It's funny to me how, you know, at the same time as a show like This Is Us, you can have a show like the second season of American Crime that deals with male-male sexual assault, which you know, outside of like Law & Order SVU, it's not really something that you get. And that's a show that's really, I mean, that's what the season is about. There, right. And there, there's a there's a sense with which, on the one hand, I, I don't want to use the word nostalgia, but when, when, when Star Wars came out and people were kind of interested in the idea of the John Boyega character and which, which character, the, there was a guy, there was a pilot in that movie. There Oscar see, Isaac? Yeah, Oscar Isaac's character, like Tumblr blew up with the idea <laughs> that these two guys could be dating. And there's a part of me that there's a nostalgia for like the the what if question. That's kind of the, you know, as a queer person, the kind of the question that I was always asking of everything that I was watching. On the other hand, that's obviously not kind of politically satisfying. If there were more stories that were facing these things head on, I think that I'd be more interested in the kind of subtle, the subtle and I think very kind of cinematic questions about people's subjectivity 
that you can otherwise ask. But I'm I'm interested in in other alternatives where it's like so like this is us is going to commodify plot twists as you say, and for queerness to be just a plot twist. I feel like on the one hand we're exploding the number of ways that we can get at queerness, but we're still not sort of satisfied in terms of just shows that have figured out what queerness even means in terms of drama or everyday life or yeah. the mundane. Like I think that's part of the problem with the Sulu thing too. It's like they don't really have an imagination in terms of what an LGBT person's life when they're taking off their LGBT hat. Right. Like, right. Yeah, because it's like if you have a show that's like an office drama, to what extent is heterosexuality an important part of that except right. for like I'm lusting after my coworker? And so it's like, I wonder, like, to what extent is homosexuality in, let's say, a workplace setting, a sort of like radical political position that you're taking versus like, I'm just here to do my job and I'm de-sexed in a certain way. However, I wanted to sort of ask, and no one really ever talks about this because I guess it's sort of like its own market, but there is definitely this market where there are explicitly like VOD queer films that are like generally poorly critically received if they are reviewed at all and they are kind of tell the same story and it's usually like four white guys they go like they're having some interpersonal drama and that that's sort of it but I guess to what extent do you feel like those in terms of like a larger industry perspective people feel like you know people at the top feel like that market fulfills for that audience you know uh, we used to say uh, like 15 years ago in New York, I'm never going to another bad gay indie at the quad again. Cause like they would all live <laughs> right. th- down on 13th street for one week. And you mm-hmm. know, anything where two cute white twinks kissed would be right. like guaranteed to get some kind of release. And, and you'd go there thirsty for it. But like, I, I don't, I don't really feel a vast appetite to be pandered to in that right. way, you know, nor do I feel antipathy to people who really like those movies. I mean, right. equality means having your own flavor of trash too. And mm-hmm. so like, I don't, I don't object to those existing. I don't think everything needs to be, you know, quote unquote, good for the cause. But um, it's important to note, I think with those movies that they're, they're weeds that spring up in the cracks. They're like right. stuff like that exists. Those sub markets exist because the mainstream of movie culture, which is really bad at, incidental mundaneness and matter of factness that's just not what movies mostly do mm-hmm. is not serving and it's not really interested in serving lgbt audiences i mean the the numerical fact is we're just not a big enough percentage of the market to move the needle much in terms of what studios do even though we are probably a bigger percentage of the market than our population numbers suggest it's still not big enough. And that's why uh, something like La La Land is interesting. It's in, Well, I, I've always found it really interesting to talk about musicals and Hollywood musicals because of its gay audience, the existing gay audience, which for obviously Broadway as well. I mean, they're, they're pushing these productions as viewers. Um, they're making them, but they're never in them. Yeah. Um, and La La Land is an interesting um, example of a movie because it's, it's this contemporary throwback um, to Los Angeles, it's extremely white, it's extremely middle class, it's extremely straight. And a movie like that shows like the huge divide that always has existed and will continue to exist, this idea of this kind of escapism. Who is it made for? Who's watching this? Who's actually the viewer? It was. It's a weird experience, especially in this day and age, to watch a movie like that that's so white and so straight. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that is the way we should necessarily critique it because that's what's happening in our culture. Everything has to be right. talked about in this way. But yeah. I do think that that's a particular example where it's kind of irresponsible not to look at it 
in that light. I was really struck in La La Land, which I guess we can talk about now that it's opened, by the scene in which Emma Stone's character has her theater showcase, the play that she wrote, Mm. and only like seven people show up, and some of them are the girls she went to the party with earlier in the movie. And it's like, she looks like Emma Stone. She wants to be an actress. She works on the Warner Brothers lot as a barista. (laughs) There is no person in Los Angeles like that who does not have 17 gay male friends who would have shown Mm. up to that performance. I mean, and, you know, part of that is an extension of how underpopulated La La Land is in general, but it's also a specific failure of imagination to think like, who is she? Who would she know? What would she do? Who would know her? Who would support her? You know, and, and I use La La Land as a, as an extreme example of this sort of thing because one thing that I think straight viewers don't understand about the way gay people watch movies is that when we're watching, they're almost always heterosexual stories, and we're used to that, and we're fine with that, and we love those right. movies. But we're always looking at that and thinking that's not quite me. I don't quite get that. So um, when you watch a movie that's so specifically about love and desire and what it means, like the lobster say, I don't, I don't understand the lobster. I don't understand why the, lobs- why the lobster has that makes no gestures toward queerness at all in its crazy fanciful world. It's, it's yeah. saying some very harsh things about love and romance and maybe I'm happy that we're not part of that because we, we would have been uh, but I mean, uh, mowed I like- down. But I mean, I, I do feel like and, and a movie like Don't Think Twice even the Mike Bigley film like this group of like Brooklyn friends and they have no gay friends. Like I, uh, this yeah. is how we watch these movies and well, it's troubling. Well, I mean, the thing I will say about The Lobster is that I think the point of The Lobster is sort of its vicious thought experiment played out is that it is enti- it is about how society is repressive when it comes how societal expectations are so repressive well, exactly that's why and, it was especially shocking that there's no because it, 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 and, yeah, and I mean just the fact that I think at the end the idea that they've escaped both ridiculous extremes and yet he still feels the need to go in and blind himself to truly be with this woman just shows like how pernicious and it's like you can never escape from certain more societal mores and that's more and like how horrible and terrible that is like it's it's an it's, argument against these things I, but i understand what you're saying there's another example of uh maybe it could be recouped as metaphorical queerness and that happens so much and i'm kind of mm-hmm. sick of that too and we talked about that in a recent podcast but when i watched the lobster i had a very literal question which was so what happens to gay people in this society and then right, exactly. made this assumption that i guess in, a, in in something that's that has such a an extreme idea of what is allowed and what isn't allowed in terms of interpersonal relationships gay must just not be allowed it must be something that's illegal but the fact that i had to go on this internal journey to come up with that logic and that it wasn't addressed and it's such a basic question when you're saying here's a whole of society here's how people have romantic relationships in the society except for these people we're not even going to talk about it except they pair up men and women i I just want to say fellow queers that you are all forgetting a pivotal moment in this movie that i love the lobster because we don't all think alike which is that at the very beginning of it they do acknowledge homosexuality in that in this rigid, screwed up society, Colin Farrell is forced to choose whether he's straight or gay. He has to declare That's himself. Right. And he doesn't want to because he's like, well, I had this experience and they're like, no, you have to be either straight or gay. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. But then why, so why isn't do, anybody, why don't we get I, to watch that journey? But I, I just want to point out that the movie does nod to having to type yourself as a feature of this dystopian society. So I don't think it was unaware of. Well, I do. I do remember that, but it is interesting that they have the choice and every single person's choice in the entire hotel is, I guess, to be Well, he got sent to the straight hotel. There's a gay hotel somewhere else and it's not Olivia Coleman. It's some other like doyen. Does the gay hotel hotel have better animals? (laughs) (laughs) 
peacocks. Yeah. <laughs> like peacocks and bulldogs. <laughs> it's like, I know, everybody wants to be the pug. <laughs> you know, one thing that's funny, I mean, talking about, we've got, gotten to the lobster, but uh, before that we were talking about trash. The lobster is funny to me because actually, for the reasons you guys are pointing out, I do think, like when I go on something like Netflix, you watch Lose the Warmest Color, Netflix automatically says, well, I've got you pegged. So you're a homosexual. And here's all your homosexual trash. And it's interesting that, like, I mean, you know, thinking internationally, it's interesting to me that most of those movies wind up being, if they're if they're not about, like, you know, the American twinks who have, like, you know, birthday cake frosting on themselves on the cover of the movie, then it's, like, these Israel-Palestine, you know, kind of queer dramas or these German ones. And it's, it's interesting that, like, these things, like on Netflix, there's no... Otherwise, you would separate the, like, Kurt Russell movie from the high art kind of straight movie. But on Netflix, it's like, is there is there no variety? Is there, like, not breath? Is it that you're going to, like, Israel, you're going to Germany to get these movies? Where are these other queer movies that I know are out there? Like, where are they? Why, why is there no, like, high, low? There's no... I don't know. It's all I, just sort of... I love the yeah. indie divide you pointed out. Because it's so true, though, that there's, like, n very little between, you know, nobody came to my birthday party in WeHo, and right. the repressive regime is going to kill us all, so right. kiss yes. me once before we die. Right. I mean, it's, right. you know, it's, like, something a little more down the middle than that. Right, like, give great. me, give me, like, with the straight, it's like you have the, you know, 19th century British strong woman drama. You have all these things. I mean, these are my preferences on Netflix. <laughs> you know, side of my, my psyche, I guess, but... But for the LGBT drama, it's like, yeah, you watched you watched that one, so now I'm assuming you would like this entire spectrum of movies that really have nothing to do with Blue is the Warmest Color. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Twink movie is not like Blue is the Warmest Color at all. At least if you're looking at movies that are about gay men, there is a very interesting, like, sort of trashy, you know, made its way through some sort of festival circuit versus, like, serious art house drama. When it comes to lesbian movies... There's like three serious art house drawn, you know, maybe it'll suggest Carol or something like that. And then everything else is actual softcore porn for straight men. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. like, because you like queer movies. And I'm like, this, you do not understand me at all. Netflix. Right. right. And that brings me to an interesting thing I'd like to talk about. If everyone here has seen The Handmaiden, which is an interesting yeah, sure. queer film from 2016. I enjoyed the film, but I do have as like kind of an open question how people feel about the representation of sex in it, who you think the viewer is. Yeah. It has a very, I would say, like stringently male gaze, lesbian erotica feel to it, even though we live in a very different period now and everybody wants to kind of be on the right bandwagon. So it seems like it's been totally recouped by queer culture as like an important queer film. Of course, it was a big deal in Korea. It was a big hit. And that it's culturally, it's a very different thing there. But in the way that people are watching in here, there's there's almost like an uncritical view towards it. Whereas like if you wander into any given scene during those sex scenes, they're a little, a little silly. And it's not taken maybe to task the way Blue is the Warmest Color was, I think, to a ridiculous extent a few years ago, which a film that I enjoyed. I mean, I, I feel like it, the movie's like playing with you, though. Like that's the point of it. And that the that the sex scenes are sort of like ridiculous and they're like, Oh, I never thought I was a lesbian until now, until I well, expertly ate this girl's pussy. Like that was so, like <laughs> like this, this thing. Like oh wait, oh, wow, like like it's a joke. It's like a, this part of this elaborate joke that the film that the narrative is telling on. It you. is yeah. It's As a opposed film that plays to the warmest color, where it's just like 
I'm coming all the time. Like, what, like, what is that? That's ridiculous. Like, no one has sex. That, like, that. That's being trying to be more naturalistic. This is this podcast is gonna get so bleeped. But like, it's so, like, it's so. You know, it's that the blues are with colors, trying for a completely different aesthetic than Handmaiden is. I think that because there are so few representations of gay and particularly lesbian sex in mm-hmm. film, obviously in the mainstream, but even in independent film, there's simply not enough. There's like all this responsibility that's placed on the films that are and expectations of what they should be. And that really opens up uh, artistic choices that are made or aesthetic choices that are made to the criticisms of representing reality. I haven't seen Handmaiden yet. And so mm-hmm. I don't know uh, what to say about that. There was a really great article in Autostraddle, which is a, mm-hmm. an online lesbian publication that talked about how while some of the relationship between the the women felt rang true, the sex is very aestheticized. So mm-hmm. it's all what what interests male director about the lesbian sex isn't even just the titillating aspect of it, but the aesthetic value of having them mirror each other. The the idea always is like, get it? They look the same. They look the same, and they're together. How how beautiful is that? The symmetry. If in a world where there were a preponderance of movies that represented queer sex between women maybe that would be less galling. Mm -hmm. I wrote about Blue is the Warmest Color and the fact that, no, I don't find the sex to be realistic in terms of its representation of lesbian sex, but I did find that within the narrative of the story, it just wasn't, the the point of that movie wasn't to be about a lesbian couple and what it means to come out and to be a lesbian. The point is about this love story that's like so insanely explosive and a melodramatic for the movie's way that it changes this person's life. So of course they're having this insane big league. You're never going to have that on your first time sex because it's just not about lesbian life. It's another movie should be. You know, honesty goes a long way, I would say, and and everything doesn't need to be over aestheticized, even in an indie, even in an art movie. I mean, I was really surprised that between two men, the most realistic sex scene I saw this year was in this Sundance movie, Other People, which is super awkward sex between a couple that's sort of broken up but is kind of together and uh one of them one of the guys is um Jesse Plemons from Fargo and Breaking Bad and the other is Zach Woods from among other things Silicon Valley and they're a kind of awkward mismatch and Jesse Plemons is a little overweight and he's sweaty and he can't come and Zach Woods looks at him while he's on top of him and says, oh, my God, you have murder face right now. And, you know, it was just like felt like exactly something that two people who'd been together for a long time and knew all each other's secrets and dreads and embarrassments would say. And it goes by very quickly. But I do want to say that, like, one thing that really struck me about the film Other People, which is a movie I really like, is that there are three gay characters and a queer kid in it and it's not primarily a gay movie or purposefully a gay movie and it's about 90 or 100 minutes long so if you can in an hour and 40 minutes weave four gay characters into the credible fabric of a movie that isn't even a gay movie that sort of gives the lie to the argument that oh this is so hard i mean it's not hard if you're a good honest writer and you write in ways that reflect the world you know and i want to just clarify that i'm not trying to absolve because every everybody should just get make, get to make whatever movie they want and it's unfair to criticize the artist only that 
if it didn't come back to a hunger because of this major lack, then then there would be room to right. marginalize the gay or gay sex aspect in a film. It's because like each one that comes along has this um, hope attached to it that you're unable to separate an aesthetic choice from the, the honesty or authenticity of the story. It occurs to me that this is something that queer stories have to do that I, I, I would imagine straight stories don't have to do to the same extent. It's just, it seems like everyone has to figure out their extent, like the, the relationship to sex. Like a queer story has to figure out what it's going to do there or what it's not going to do there. And it seems like something that, you know, I don't know, a movie I'm big on right now is like Sully. Sully didn't have to figure out anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a super, stupid example, but I'm just saying, like, if Sully were queer, actually, like, the movie would have to figure out what its relationship would be to his, the sexual, like, the sex of his queerness. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that is a little, you know, uh, I mean, talking about The Handmaiden, I have a, a, a friend, a, a queer woman who always texts me when she sees a movie directed by a straight guy that has a kind of a lesbian sex scene. And usually her complaint is, why do they add all these wet noises? <laughs> <laughs> and it made me think. And she's like, Black Swan. And it's like, it's, and she, you know, she's naming movies that, you know, are, are stylized to be sort of excessive anyway. Mm -hmm. But she's like, why all the wetness? And then we talked about Carol. And she's like, you know, at least Todd Haynes, like, I mean, and maybe, you know, maybe... Todd Haynes didn't want to go there or didn't think of it or whatever, but she's like, you know, at least Todd Haynes was like, let's make it sound like they're drinking their cereal milk. I think what we're touching on is a larger problem with just how sex is represented, period, in sure. films. Because it's like, oh, you showed the woman's face. It's from her perspective. She's enjoying herself. It's like, what the fuck? Like, that is the stupidest formal reading of a sex scene or just that, you know, how do you stage it where you stage it so you get a bunch of man butt and like you alienate half the audience or more because you're showing this. Like, And I think that's sort of why it's more comfortable to show violence because it's like, well, that's the, the spatial dynamics of this are very comfortable and everyone is fine with blood. And, but if you show a BJ, whoa, that's like not cool. That's it's too much. But there is something very particular about representations of gay men or representations of gay women. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Like when it's a movie about queer people, sex becomes either a presence or an absence. And that's mm -hmm. really important either way to talk about. But also, then, like you were saying, Freya, about variety, if we had this variety, we wouldn't have to talk about these, each thing being this big deal. Right. So when something like um, other people has what I believe you're saying is, is a rather laudably uh, clumsy sex scene between two regular guys, that's interesting. But it also makes me realize, but that actually is also the easy way out because that's acceptable by straight viewers. Oh, I get it. I can relate. It's clumsy. When's the last time you saw an aestheticized, hot, mainstream sex scene between two men? In fact, I can't think of one ever. That's Broke true. Brokeback like, Mountain certainly Eastern didn't have boys? it. That was, that was, that was uh, clumsy. What was that? Eastern boys? Well, from an in an American film, you know. Yeah, that's true. Like the lack of, I mean, yeah, it would be nice to have more like queer people on screen who like knew how to fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. not but to also be crass. aren't like for like a, but, you know, a director or porn stars or a director, yeah. right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like real. You, you can't win when there's so little of anything that sure. everything has to be seen as overrepresentative. Because if you have this kind of hot aestheticized sex scene between two men, there's going to be a lot of outcry from gay people who don't look like the kind of gay men who could have sex on screen in a right. movie. Thinking, why does everything have to be about? you know, hotness and body that's, image yeah. and, you know. But there's always going to be a niche outcry from someone. But I mean, for example, Carol, 
Carol didn't have an outcry from people who thought that, the, oh, those are two extremely attractive women. I don't want to see that. But that's because how are lesbians portrayed? It's like, oh, you know, she's a lesbian because she has short hair and she's real tough. Like it's like it's a. I feel like Carol was just a reaction against like I don't Speaking well, as a straight person who has no right to speak on these issues, I felt like it was a reaction against this idea that all lesbians, and specifically throughout history, were butch, and that and that well, it couldn't be these two. You know, regardless, uh, it's, it's yeah, it's about taking a risk. It's about risking that having that reaction, and the even bigger risk, of course, is that nobody will go see this movie where Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise and Interview the Vampire actually have a hot gay sex scene right. because right. I mean that's I want that risk to happen I want the conversation to happen then I'll find out who's angry and who's alienated uh, after I, I mean the liberation of Cameron what you called straight stories instead of gay stories is that straight stories are stories yeah. the same way that men's <laughs> movies are movies and women's movies are women's movies right. like you know Sully didn't have to worry like I mean yeah you could substitute Peter Sarsgaard saying be careful honey for Laura Linney saying be careful honey and that's about the only change you'd have to make but like straight stories white stories male stories can be whatever they want and they can yeah. include sex or not with gay stories it's this weird issue because you know, in in the minds of straight culture, the otherness of homosexuality is entirely about, like, what happens in bed. Right. So, of course, like, when there's a gay story made by straight culture, uh, it's going to either, like, go towards sex in a really weird way or veer from it in a huge way, like Sulu's boyfriend's backpat, yeah. you know, as as the most intimacy you're going to get. It occurs to me that an interesting movie in this conversation for me has to think about has been Moonlight, where you know its its relationship to sex, like sexual desire, felt very complicated in the contemporary context because it was very clearly a movie that was not afraid of sexual desire. It's not afraid of wet dreams or fantasies, or or, or you know like the there's a scene on the beach that's sexual, but it's also a movie that understands sexual desire within intimacy in a way that when I saw it the first time felt very new to me in the, in the kind of contemporary context where it, like the, the, you know, the end game was not penetration. Mm -hmm. And yet like that, it, it also wasn't polite about sex. It wasn't, right. wasn't afraid of it. For me, that was a very, it, it surprises me that that's, it should strike me in 2016 that a movie is nuanced about uh, sexual intimacy, but it, does. What I loved about Moonlight with regards to the depiction of queerness is that it's entirely crucial to the story of the to the character that he is queer and sort of unpacking that and totally not important as a viewer that he's queer in a way. The the struggles that he's experiencing and the relationships that he goes through are colored by this thing, but ultimately it's it's not about this only matters to me because this person's gay. Right. Mhm. Mm and it's right. that like creating that divide or not divide, but creating a film that includes both of those where it's like, yes, this is woven into my identity. And obviously that's what the film is ultimately about. But it's it's not a, it doesn't have to be political discussion about it, it shouldn't be so difficult. And, and, and or, or even like um, I think in particular, I th there there are an, a number of things that we've talked about where there is some difference between whether you're talking about a lesbian depiction or gay men and particularly with gay men it's like um you know mark's something that you that you and michael were talking about is like are people more comfortable with like goofy male sex in a way because it's like oh like you, you know you're just banging those things together like 
two 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 old dirt bags. Is that how it works? <laughs> and, I've been doing it wrong. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and in and in Moonlight, it like shows the kinds of sexual interactions that are very clunky, and it's so romantic. I I, I don't know if this ended up in the piece, but when I wrote about it for Film Comment, I think I wrote something about how it's like the most like lovely and beautiful hand job committed to film since like you know reese witherspoon gets fingered on the roller coaster in fear <laughs> it's incredible that like the moonlight on the water and like the, the 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 like romance and sensitivity between them regardless of what the action is because sexual actions are always a little bit awkward yeah to me the amazing thing about moonlight which we're talking about for a reason because it really is this stunning movie is that it's one of the really rare gay movies I've seen where sexuality is neither incidental nor the point. Right, like, exactly. The movie is about, to me, the terror of living with the possibility that you will never find out who you are, that you'll never be able to say who you are, that even your name won't land on you. Mm -hmm. And for this particular character, his sexuality is absolutely a critical part of it, but not the only part. Um, and so to, to, to see sexuality explored really honestly as a part of identity, but also as part of a larger question, that, that is so rare in any medium that, that I think that's, that's one reason why Moonlight is so outstanding to all of us. And, and also that there's a, obviously since it's a coming age story, it moves in this linear way, but there's also a move towards a more overt eroticization in the film. Like, so by the time you get to the end, you are craving the sexual release. The film doesn't necessarily give it, it has a different kind of emotional mm -hmm. catharsis, but there's something kind of, I don't know, bracing about that and bracing Absolutely. about the way that it homoeroticizes the character at the end. I was actually really impressed by that. And, and I guess homoeroticization is, is a, is a whole other discussion, but, but it also, I was thinking a lot about everybody wants some this year, which was Linklater's pseudo sequel to Days and Confused, a film I enjoyed a lot. One of the reasons I enjoyed it a lot is because the men are really, really beautiful in it, and the movie does not shy away from that, and the movie exploits right, that. Right. And this uh, turned into an interesting discussion, an online discussion, and a lot of pieces about like, did Linklater intend to make a homoerotic movie or is it an accident? Of course, n nothing's an accident, right, in these films. And um, but it's interesting how if you eroticize the male body the way that film does throughout, it becomes a talking point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that also that it becomes like homoeroticizing when it's like, really, I think what everybody wants some acknowledges is that there are people who like to look at men. There yeah. are people who want to see these straight baseball bros shake their ass in the mirror. Right. <laughs> like, right. And those are queer men. Those are women. Those are straight men. I, like, they're, yeah. like, there's a right, right, there's little a tiny part of their brain that they <laughs> right. don't want to there's talk like, about. Because it, it is how that movie works. It's fascinating. And what you're talking about is Western culture's larger relationship to the male body period, where it's like you can have a Vanity Fair cover where all the women are draped over shit like their <laughs> blankets. Tables. Yeah, they're yeah, you know, like they're these things to be draped over things to lie back to be passive. And if you put men in those same poses, it's it's a joke. It's right. funny, and right. it's like. Well, maybe I find that erotic. And then just, you know, even though magazines are dying, I still feel like the Sports Illustrated issue where, you know, they'll have a nude baseball player on the cover in the midst of a swing that that is like, I think that's very much a step in the right direction of being like, look, a male body can be soft and powerful and erotic and multiple things at the same time. And like uh, also, you know, I think we have to admit as queer people that our desire for countable, firm representation can conflict with the fact that not knowing is hot and uncertainty Absolutely. is yeah. hot and like homosocialism is hot uh, 
homoeroticism is hot. Like one of the amazing things, again, about Moonlight is that for the entire last third of the movie, you don't know whether either of the two characters who are in that scene identifies as gay. Right. Um, right. And that push and pull between them, I mean, partly because the two actors do it so beautifully, but partly because of the way it's written, is really exciting. Like, is Andre Holland's character gay or not or bisexual or does he even label himself or is it just about his relationship to Chiron independent of any larger label? I mean, that kind of stuff is real. And just as, like, every gay man in life has had the experience of looking at another guy and being turned on by the fact that you don't know if he's gay or not. And there has to be room for that kind of storytelling ambiguity and uncertainty in movies too, as long as it's not a cop-out and and avoidance. I was actually going to say that about the Ghostbusters example, that if we weren't left so frequently with only the what-if question, then that representation would have been incredible because it's a potentially probably lesbian character where her sexuality is not the point of the character. That film is not about romance to begin with, so why should we have to go down this path to describe who she's dating and seeing and attracted to you're, you know, like what you put out in the world as a queer person can be enough of an indication and film should be able to reflect that too. But unfortunately, I mean like what was (laughs) Melissa McCarthy in bridesmaids? Like right. that, that mm-hmm. character was she really... She modeled on Guy Fieri, apparently. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is Guy Fieri? <laughs> A real dyke, if you ask me. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the Ghostbusters is a, a great example because, you know, my difficulty with that movie is, you know, yes, it's not about sex, but she's in this movie with people whose personas are often tied to sex. So Kristen Wiig's inability to have a boyfriend is part of her shtick. And Leslie Jones is very open about kind of race and sex dynamics. So when you put her in that movie and you have her also being sort of this queer, fabulous creature that you just don't know what to make of her as a a nerd, she's she's all of these things. She's a style icon, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of like, well, so yeah, what about, right? Like Kristen Wiig's over here, Hanging for a boyfriend. Leslie Jones is 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 finding ways to turn everything that she does into a sec a, a sex or a race joke in some way. And a joke about her body and a joke about all these things. So yeah, what is going on over here? That was like the kind of lack for me. And in a way, even in a way, I guess you could I could see how someone might say, well, her queer persona is that, but it's so that's a case where the uncertainty isn't interesting, really, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's complicated. I do also just like that she's sort of this figure who who seems to be freer than the other characters because she's unmoored from a lot of these questions. That's sort of why, for me, the movie is her because she's the only one who seems to be untethered from the needs of this stupid plot and these stupid CGI. She's just over in a corner like, I'm just going to blow stuff up and, and crack a few jokes. I don't know. It's it's complicated I because I, I love that character as she is. But yeah... It's also an interesting parallel to the Sulu example that we started with because of the idea of conflating an actor who's portrayed that character with the character themselves. So maybe part of my read and why I like it's not enough because we don't have enough in general in the world, but gained some satisfaction out of that character and was like and sort of read her pretty clearly for me as um, a lesbian character is because. Kate McKinnon is an out actress. Sure. Um, And I understand in a way George Takei's 
discomfort because he's like, well, did you make the character gay because I am? Is that why you sure, have to choose yeah. this one? Or is it just nice to tick a bunch of boxes and have a gay Asian? Man? That's, <laughs> right. that's exactly. always great right. when you pack right. it up in one. What do you guys think of James Franco? <laughs> I, no, in terms of... <laughs> no, no, no. That is a whole other. I just saw this movie. Um... I wouldn't <laughs> kick him out of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, doing my dutiful catching up on 2016 movies and for whatever reason felt that the movie King Cobra had to be a part of that movie about the kind of making of a, a famous, infamous gay porn studio and uh, the guy was murdered, etc. I kept thinking about James Franco's need to play queer all the time. And um, this, this is coming up in my mind because of your point about uh, the relationship between the actor and the you know, the character, what do I do with him? Like, I, I don't know, is he supposed to be a queer presence to me because he so badly wants to be? And because as a straight person who so badly wants to be, he is in a way sort of doing something that's different from norms of, I, you know, I don't know what to make of him. I mean, I, he's aggravating. The, but. the only the only gay portrayal he ever gave that I didn't buy was co-hosting the Oscars with Anne Hathaway. But, <laughs> but other than that, I sort of like, I welcome his interest and curiosity and yeah. obsession. Like he's working something out or through or playing with something and it hasn't offended me. I'm, I I don't feel like everybody stay in your lane. You have to define who you are and this is ours and you don't get to touch it. Like if James Franco is like fascinated with queer questions, like if somebody's going to make interior leather bar, it might as well be him. I, I, I think it's just, it's one facet of, of a, a very scrupulously created persona that he's doing. Sure. And I think yeah. that's, I think that's why so many of us feel uncomfortable with it. I don't necessarily feel uncomfortable with it as a gay man. I just sure. think that's one of the many things he wants to define himself as being part of a certain right. subset of culture at, or actually he wants to be in many subsets of culture. Sure. Um, and, yeah, I, and I, and I just, I don't know. I, I, I also think that the movies that he makes just tend to be the kind of like impoverished first drafts of things. So I'm just getting kind of tired of him. Yeah. It's just like, it, I feel like I don't even think of him in this queer realm, I just think of him as like yet another celebrity who is very calculating and how they want to position themselves as quote unquote interesting. And just the fact that, you know, he's gotten all these MFAs and, you know, he hangs out with Marina Abramovich and blah, blah. And it's like, but nothing in his work actually speaks to a larger depth or uh, knowledge of like a actual like avant-garde or queerness. Like it's just very surface level. And so it's, it's hard for me. I, I don't know. I can think of so many actors, American actors, his age who are more worthy of our boredom. Yeah. Like, you know, he's, he's at least, Fair. you know, he, he's <laughs> not, carved not out a really, really, really weird niche. And, and, you know, if there were 10 of him, I might be freaking out, but, but, Oh, it's not like a uh, colonization. You know, but I think if you want to look at, sorry, if you want to look at an actual work of his, Interior Leather Bar is a good example of a completely failed project. And I think mm -hmm. it fails because it, it's this sort of, um, it's, this shoots itself in the foot project where um, he's trying to align himself in a certain way with queer culture, but he can only constantly reassert his own straightness, masculinity, heterosexuality throughout. So it becomes actually kind of like an ultimate gay panic movie. And I, and I, I thought it was offensive, frankly. I'll give him this. I think his uh, cruising Sean Penn in the subway station in Milk, um, I, I, that scene always has stood out to me as a very, I think that if I'm watching two people cruise each other on screen, I should be turned on because it's so much about being turned on from far and kind of teasing these things out. And the ambiguity of that, I think, is very sexually arousing. And I have to say, like, that moment is a moment in which I think that he shows a lot of potential as someone who seems to understand how... Um, performing desire for another man can work. I largely feel that he hasn't really lived up to that. You know, even King Cobra, it's like, all right, you know, 
there's a movie here that I think could be interesting about this, you know, like a, a, I think we could use like a good movie about gay porn as an industry. I think that's something that shouldn't be off limits. But yeah, if James Franco is going to be in it, I, so, I have a feeling that I know what it's going to be. And it turned out to be that. He doesn't seem to be, but he's a mainstream actor, which is why I'm interested. He's so mainstream. Yeah. I mean, I mm. wish he worked longer on fewer movies. You know, he directs sure. more in three months than Terrence Malick has in his entire career. But, sure. but you know, I, I think he's on an interesting journey. And if I were to speculate about where he might be in five or ten years, it could be someplace really interesting. All right. I think and I have one more negative thing to say about him, <laughs> which is that he does have, you say, he's the Hollywood version of James Franco and the indie, mm -hmm. very gay, interested version of James Franco. And those things don't cross-pollinate well. Mm -hmm. What happens is he ends up using and taking advantage of the identity that he's created in indie film to, um, I would say, exploit and mock some of the same things in his Hollywood films. Many of his Hollywood films plays off this weird he's so gay but is he not persona where he kind of pals around with his bros and and it becomes part of the joke so i don't really also don't appreciate the way that he hasn't been able to kind of take that and make something good of it for the larger audience well i will say this before we end he was there was just enough james franco in sausage party which as mm. we discussed before this podcast has weirdly the best representation <laughs> <laughs> sexuality gay or straight or whatever going going yeah. on these days and, and sausage party is part of a larger evan goldberg seth rogan right. body of work where queerness is kind of accepted as a part of the general larger filth and smirkiness of all sexuality yes. right. which uh, again is sort of like it passes my test of the the this is us test that i referred to earlier like is gay stuff presented on the same terms as straight stuff which is coarse and slightly gross and worthy of mockery mm -hmm. yes so in conclusion go see sausage party yes. <laughs> can you title this podcast episode gay stuff <laughs> <laughs> or just bang those things together <laughs> on that note sadly we have to end but before we do it would be great if we could all go around and say one movie we saw recently that we liked i will start to give you time I rewatched Carlos, which was the first Olivia Assayas movie I ever saw, and it was just as magical as the first time I saw it, possibly even better. The best, one of the best soundtracks of all time, and a great performance by Edgar Ramirez. And um, yeah, I don't know. There's, I still can never get over the scene at the Swiss border where the German, the <laughs> the German woman pulls out a gun and murks those uh, Swiss border agents. But anyway. Um, can I cheat and do a live cinema event? Their sure. wording, not mine. Okay, so last night I went to um, BAM and watched the Sam Green and Brent Green performance that's part of the New Wave Film Festival and um, or New, New Wave Festival. It's theater. But Sam Green has been doing these part filmed segments and part live performance um, pieces and installations for a while now, and I find them to be really moving. He's a great storyteller. And he addressed why he chooses to work in this format, which is the idea of cinema as a social space and that the movie begins when you walk through the door as opposed to beginning when, you know, the light comes up on screen. And I uh, really appreciated both the sentiment and the interplay of elements that he used during the performance. I'm going to pick 
La La Land because even though it won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Film, it's a pretty divisive movie from what I've been able to tell so far. And and we're entering award season when everybody really starts to entrench and everything is kind of either an A or an F. So I just wanted to say that I've, I've seen La La Land twice. I feel like I've had an interesting journey with it in that I liked it but did not love it the first time. Then as time went by, I started to like it less. The things that seemed wrong with it felt more prominent in my head uh, than the things that felt right with it. I went back to it and liked it much more the second time. I, I was really taken the second time with Emma Stone's performance, with the coherence of the songs by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul uh, and Justin Hurwitz. And yet I still had some reservations, but seeing it, letting it rest and sit in my head and seeing it a second time was a really rewarding journey for me and, and a journey that I think we should probably all take more with movies if we can find the time to. Um, I'm going to mention The Invitation, which is Karen Kusama's very good, very suspenseful horror film. And it's also a movie from 2016 that has gay characters. And I would say it plays with a couple conventions in terms of, I don't want to give too much away, but who gets to survive in terms of queerness and, and, um, and people of color. And other than that, it's just, um, one of those horror movies that really, really works because it's about sadness and grieving. So when, so when it's over, you feel like you've really been put through the ringer. It really has something to say. Um, well, not to be that guy because it's not out yet, and I'm such a Scorsese bro that it's disgusting. But I cannot stop thinking about Silence since seeing it. I think it's the first film I've seen in a while. I was telling Violet this that I just I, I knew, immediately knew that I I liked and respected, but also just. It was the first film I'd seen in a while that just felt like it confronted me with much more than I could really think about or wrap my mind around the first time I saw it. It felt like a movie that I, I've seen it, but I haven't seen it yet, that I have to keep seeing it. And I just I just think it's very inspiring to see someone like um, Martin Scorsese say that he's finally made the movie that he's been waiting to make his entire life. I think just as a, a fan of this artist in particular, but artists generally, people that you really respect, who you know are are kind of huge talents it's it's remarkable to see someone do like break out and do the thing that they really want to do and i think what that looks like for him is interesting different than when people i think people think that like movie was wolf of wall street and like that movie is the complete opposite in many ways of this movie but i love it so go see it in like a month (laughs) when it comes out all right well thank you all for coming this was wonderful this was fun thanks thank you You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>